So flip to Romans 11, if you have a Bible with you. Romans 11, we're working our way through this section um, one more week, and then we're going to pause for a few weeks, and then we'll get back to the rest of Romans, Lord willing. But Romans 11, 16 through 24 will be our passage today. Horticulture and mankind. So you may think, why is he talking about horticulture? You'll see. It'll make sense. I promise. <clears throat> Romans eleven 16. Let's read that. These are the words of God. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own, own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we have gathered as your people here today, the first day of the week when Jesus, your son, was raised from the dead. Much like an army facing an uphill battle against an apostate culture, we have assembled to look to your word and to be filled by your Holy Spirit. Help us to learn discernment, to be winsome and equipped for battle. Teach us how to use our weapons of war, things like joy, peace, and diligent planning. We need your help, we pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So if you remember what we covered from uh, two weeks ago, we've been talking about what it means to be the people of God in covenant with God through the blood of Christ and the general makeup of that group of people. He's spent three chapters discussing this whole issue of Jews and Gentiles and the people of God. Gentile Christians have been brought in because Israel was hardened. And not every last person, of course, in Israel was hardened, but many were. Thousands of Jewish people heard the preaching of Peter and they came to Christ. So it wasn't like five came to Christ and the rest were judged 40 years later in AD 70. Thousands upon thousands of Jewish people came to Christ. So, but there still was a hardening in Israel, specifically the religious leaders and the people who stuck to their guns and who wanted to be a part of whatever you know, program the religious leaders were putting together. So not every, not every last person was hardened in judgment, but many, many were. They had rejected their Messiah, of course, and God had done the hardening. This casting aside like what they had done to Jesus, was the means by which the gospel would go to the nations. That was the section before this. Making unbelieving Jews jealous was part of the ministry of believing Jews and Gentiles. I argued uh, two weeks ago that that's sort of what we, we want to do is make the world jealous. And we should never be jealous of the wealth or the, the progress or the building of the wicked 
Uh, Proverbs forbid, you know, forbid such things. We don't want to be jealous of them. They should be jealous of us. But that means that we, we need to get our act together, essentially. So we need to be building the platforms like something like a gab, or we need to be building the businesses, and we need to be ones that, well, back before we started Crossing Crown, Jordan and I agreed that one of our core verses would be, and they plundered the Egyptians. So that's just kind of always been embedded deep within our minds. Let's uh, plunder the Egyptians um, or you know, big tech companies, as it were, and big pharma, all of them. We'll take all their money. <laughs> so that's part of our plan. In the logic of verse 15, if you remember this, was this. For if their, that's unbelieving old covenant Jews, if their rejection means the reconciliation of, wor- of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead, a resurrection? So in other words, a, a far worse thing happened. That is unbelieving Jews rejecting Jesus, putting him on a cross, putting him to death. That terrible, awful thing has led to many coming to know the Lord. Now, if that's the case, then how much better? What happens, how much more, how much, um, what happens when a much better thing happens when they accept their, their Messiah? It would literally mean a resurrection and an awakening on a colossal scale hitherto unknown. This, we should note, is what we call an eschatological reckoning. When God pours out his spirit and transforms the world. And that's something the prophets had predicted over and over again. The prophets had foreseen this. If you want to know about the new heavens and new earth, you can go to Revelation, but just know that John's also pulling from Isaiah. Isaiah 60 through 66. It's all about the new heavens and new earth. So the prophets had foreseen all of it. So God would transform the world. That was always his promise. From the very beginning of Genesis, that's was what God was planning to do. God would transform the world. That is the inexorable conclusion of the gospel. It's, it's a shame that we think the gospel is just sort of an individual transaction and that's it. It's not. The, the conclusion of the gospel is the redemption of the world. Okay, that's where it's all going. That's her trajectory which, of course, is what God has been doing ever since Jesus walked out of the tomb, mind you. We live in a world where a tomb sits empty because a dead guy was there, but he's not there anymore. That's power. That's authority. So today we have an explanation of this Jew-Gentile dynamic here, and Paul uses a horticulture metaphor in order to prove his point. The work of the Jewish Messiah in conjunction with the history and trajectory of Israel's old covenant promises has now brought a new covenant. And that new covenant is with, in, in tandem with everything else that's gone before. This is what we call the continuity of the covenant. Um, dispensationalists are notorious for this. Um, and others, too, they, they divide up the Bible. Old covenant is irrelevant. It's pointless. We're in the new covenant. Well... Jesus confirms what the Old Testament was pointing to. It's not irrelevant. You don't just throw it away. It's all connected. And you you might say it this way. The Old Testament asked for a king. The New Testament said, here he is. (laughs) Here's your king. Uh, Which is interesting what Pilate says about Jesus. Behold your king. Yeah, exactly. He is the king. So what was promised then, think Old Covenant, was now coming to fruition now. And so Christ has brought the promises of God to bear. Everything the Old Covenant promised, Jesus says, yes, 
2. So the covenant um, is now an irrevocable covenant. Now, here's the thing. In order for any of us, any of you, to participate in this covenant, which is something you should want, you want the blessings of the covenant, you want to, to be obedient to God, right? That's your desire. You have that desire because you have the Holy Spirit. But if you want to be in this covenant, one must come to Christ who is the root, by the way, as he explains, he's the root of this tree. If you're going to come to this tree as a branch, then you have to do it by faith alone. It's always by faith alone. So the badge of membership, okay, the badge of membership for the people of God is faith, not works, not Torah observance, not circumcision, not local church membership, not even baptism. None of those things are a badge of membership um, at all. Why are you a Christian? Oh, I go to church. Bad answer. Don't ever say that. A lot of people go to church. And look at our nation. (laughs) It's not working. (laughs) Go to church harder. Oh, no, we'll close down for eight months. You know, you can't use that badge. That is a terrible badge to use. Why are you a Christian? Why is it you're a Christian? Well, (laughs) because I have faith that God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the answer. So faith is what is required to be in this covenant. Faith is what is required, and a true faith is a loyal faith. Go back to the book of James. We covered it a couple years ago, I think. I don't know. 2020 is like lost in a black hole. Um, in James, he says, look, show me your, your, um, show me your faith by works. Uh, otherwise, it's just dead, essentially, paraphrasing. You, you say you have faith. Well, I'll show you my faith by my works. So a true faith is a faith that does something. It's alive and, and well. It's not a dead, and, a dead faith. So that's the type of faith we want, one that breathes and moves in step with the gospel. False beliefs and non-exclusive devotion to Christ are likened in this passage to branches that are cut aside, cast aside and burned in the fire. Steve read from uh, John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. If you, don't, if you don't stay on this vine, you're cut off and you're thrown in the fire. I think Paul's using that metaphor here. He's picking from Jesus's metaphor and his usage in it. So if mankind is ever to be healed, essentially, this is the the point of what Paul is going to get at. If mankind is ever going to be healed, if you're going to be healed, if your family's going to be healed, if the nations are going to be healed, then mankind must have an exclusive faith in the Messiah, period. The exclusive claims of Christ. There is so much garbage out there um, I love Jesus, and, and, you know, Buddha had some awesome things to say, so I kind of sprinkled that in. <laughs> and there's no exclusivity. It's just, I like Jesus. He was nice. Well, depending on your version of nice, he did some pretty uh, aggressive, shall we say, <laughs> things in the, in the Gospels. So if mankind is going to be healed, mankind must have a, an exclusive faith in the Messiah, period. Now, let's get to our passage here. <clears throat> The Apostle Paul writes in verse 16, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Pulling from this Feast of Weeks tradition, that's the first fruits, fruits offering in Numbers 15, 20, we learn that the whole of the thing is sanctified by the part. You give a first fruits offering, the whole thing is sanctified. Um, sort of like um, tithing principle, a tithe is a declaration that the rest of the 90% is still God's too, and I'm using it for his kingdom. 
So it's all God's, right? It's all God's money that we have. It's all his. We're just moving it about in different things. And, and that's how it's supposed to work. But the tithe is meant to, in a way, as a first fruit, sanctify the rest. 10%, awesome. That sanctifies the rest of it. And, and, if, and if you're um, the type of person who is just a curmudgeon about giving, um, well, the whole isn't sanctified at that point. Because what does the Bible teach us? God loves a cheerful giver. Okay? So the, the, the part is sanctified, and thus the whole is sanctified as well. So the whole lump, he says, is considered holy by the first fruit dough offering. And think of the tree. We have some trees out here, you can see. The, the idea of the tree here is that <clears throat> the branches are holy because of the root. If you look at a tree and you see branches that are there, they are nourished by the root. And if a branch, if you're walking by and you see the branch that's off the tree, you, you could say a quick prayer. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> um, you're you're going to just throw that away into the wood chipper and, and so it is. So the, the issue here is this. The first fruit lump of dough and the root here represents Jesus. Jesus, the Jewish Messiah. Now, I just want to tell you right up front, there's a ton of debate on this. A lot of debate. There's a lot of debate on this issue. Many Reformed, even in the Reformed world, many Reformed expositors see the root as being the patriarchs. They say, well, the root is like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're the root of this tree. And I understand why they're saying that. And it does make sense that if what we're talking about is simply a tree that consists of ethnic Jews. So think Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau were branches on this tree, but... Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Jacob was chosen. Esau had hardened his heart and God judged him accordingly. The Bible does not have nice things to say about Esau. So he was a branch that was broken off, even though he belonged on that tree. So I don't really, I don't agree with that interpretation. I'll just, you'll have to make up your own mind. But I think what's clear is that we're talking about faith and the thing that gets someone to participate in the covenant, which is what Romans has all, been all, all along. Here's sin, here's the gospel. Here's what you must do. You must have faith. And that faith is based on the faithfulness of the Messiah who was obedient and went to the cross and died in your place for your sins, was raised on the third day for your justification, and on and on and on he goes in Romans. So I, I believe the root is Jesus. So that's just my answer, and we're going to talk more as we go about it. But I don't think it's Abraham primarily, but Jesus. And to prove my point and win you to my side, okay? Galatians 3.29. It says, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs to the promise. So that lends me to believe that the, the way into this house, to change metaphors, is Jesus, not Abraham. Abraham's inside. But to get in, you got to go through Jesus. Same thing. Jesus, Jesus is the root of this tree, not Abraham, but Abraham's very much close to the bottom. He's, he's the bottom of that tree trunk, so to speak. So in order to be Israel truthfully, to be part of the true Israel, one must be in Jesus Christ, and that is only by faith. And we'll come back to this. Look at verses 17 and 18. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot... All of you are wild olive shoots today. You had no idea, but here you are. 
were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. So we have this horticulture metaphor, and the branches, of course, are people. There is a cultivated tree which stands for the people of God in covenant with God, supported by Christ the root. The covenant stands because Christ died. It's his blood. His blood was spilled. He was raised from the dead. He is the root of this tree. So this cultivated tree is the people of God. The people of God. Now, the olive tree stretches all the way back, we know, to Adam. But of course, it's most exemplified in Abraham, who Paul has already dealt with back in Romans, I think it was Romans 4. The tree metaphor is an echo of Jeremiah 11, 16 through 17. And there's a hint in uh, Hosea as well of this. But the tree, notice, how many trees are we talking about? There's one. There's one glorious tree. This is why we see the covenants being this all-encompassing aspect together. The covenant with Adam, covenant with uh, Noah, the covenant with Abraham, all the way to the covenant with David. All of those covenants are aspects of this one big overarching covenant, what we call the covenant of grace. So the Jewish people were considered natural branches because of a thousand years of cultivation by God. The Gentiles who are believing on the Messiah, they're the wild olive shoots being grafted into the tree. So if you're a Gentile here today, you're, you're not a physical descendant of Abraham that you know of. <laughs> if, you're, if you are um, a part of that, you are on a different tree. You are in the covenant of works tree with Adam. But in order to get off of there, you have to come to the people of God tree. You have to be grafted into the tree. So in a manner of speaking... You, the Gentile branch, you having been grafted in, now share in Israel's history. You are Abraham's offspring. So when you read the Bible, especially the Old Testament, that's, that's your story too. You've been brought into this. That your people crossed the Red Sea. Your people disobeyed in, in, in Korah's rebellion and got sucked into the earth. Oops. <laughs> Don't disobey, kids. The earth will swallow you. Um, parents you might have to explain that later but uh, <laughs> uh, your people David is your great 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 grandfather too you've been brought into this history you're on the tree and Christ is the root and you've believed in Christ so you are now firmly situated on this covenantal tree now there's a warning here and it addresses the issue of pride and self-righteousness that can destroy a church it can destroy people. Paul admits that there are some of uh, his fellow Jews, according to the flesh, that they've been broken off the tree in unbelief. Think Esau. Think um, people, uh, Caiaphas in the first century, who refused to bow to Jesus and sent him to Rome, and Rome put him to death, and they were all sort of guilty of this great sin. Um, the, they, in that moment, their branch is being broken off the tree. They are being pruned off of the tree. If they're broken off and you, the Gentile, are grafted on, he says, don't let that become an opportunity for condescension and arrogance. You don't support the root. The root supports you. 
So don't ever be so arrogant to think that the tree's health is dependent entirely on the branches. Okay, none of you are that inept at horticulture, but you get the metaphor. Verse 19 through 21. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, for God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. So that's a strong warning. Not very nice, but it is. It's a a warning. Yes, branches were broken off. Okay, you are a part of a covenant, and you all, all of us here today, should be thinking, well, there were people who were broken off of that tree, then I could get on the tree. Now, that can lead you one of two ways. Arrogance, look how special, I'm God's special snowflake. Or you can go down the road of gratitude and humility. But that's true. Unbelieving Israel didn't have belief. They had the literal word there, um, apistis in Greek. It means um, an unfaith. They had an unfaith in the Messiah. And you stand in the tree. You stand there by the opposite, faith and grace. So don't let that make you puff up in pride. The antidote to pride is fear. Fear of God, he says. And fear of what? If you don't continue in faith, but you pursue in uh, unbelief and that causes you to be haughty and arrogant and proud then you'll be taken off the branch too there are christians today who are on this covenant tree who are on the wrong side of this and they will be sought off jesus said as much in john 15 it can happen when when a man boasts the first thing he is left behind on his journey is faith they're not, you can't have faith and boasting. Faith and pride do not exist in the same place. One goes or the other one stays. And a side note, I want to explain this real quick. <clears throat> this isn't about losing one's salvation, by the way. So for, for those who may be confused about it, this isn't about losing one's salvation, but merely proving whether or not the faith you had was true or real. So people go to John 15 that Steve read and, and they say, wow, Jesus is harsh. If you don't abide in me, I'm going to cut you off. Well, now i got to hand-wring myself in nervousness. What do I do? Did I do all the right things to get right with God? And, and am, I, am I really following him? Did I really believe enough? Maybe I need to believe in my belief more. And then you start to hand-wringing. Ar- Arminian theology is notorious for this type of, of thinking. That's not what he's talking about. He's simply saying that true faith doesn't boast in self and thus condescend toward others. True faith, true faith that's alive, that is well, that is humble, that is grateful, that is filled with the Spirit, doesn't get broken off the branch. But there are people in the church who have tasted certain things. They have taken communion. They may have even been baptized. And they are at war with God because they're not regenerate and they're not submitting to him. And in the end, what will Jesus say? Depart from me, which is an echo of a couple places in the book of Psalms. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. These are people who did great things for God, and they were broken off. I can't help but think of all the prosperity preachers on TV fitting that bill. Verse 22, note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. There are two key attributes to God's covenant. 
two attributes about God that pertain to his covenant. One is kindness slash grace, and the other is severity slash wrath. And this should be obvious when you read Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, these passages where if you obey the covenant, what happens? Blessing. If you disobey, cursing. You're either on the side of God's kindness and grace and being blessed accordingly because you're being obedient, or you're on the side of unbelief and arrogance, and you will now experience the severity of God. Having, I just mentioned it earlier, Korah's rebellion. You, 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 you fight against God, and what happens? God judges you. And it's like the meme with the guy who's riding the bike and then sticks the stick in, falls, and blames someone else, but it was his own doing. It's that idea. You're, you put the stick in the bike, you fell. Stop blaming others. <laughs> so the covenant cuts both ways. Grace to those who have faith in Christ and wrath and severity for those in pride. Verse 23 and 24. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more would these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? So this is kind of a confusing statement, so let me explain. Paul, he understands the near impossibility of grafting dead branches back, branches that have been cut off, mind you, back into the tree, which, by the way, it would take a resurrection to do such a thing. But we serve the God of the resurrection. He can take a branch that was sawed off a tree out here and sat there for years, and he could resurrect it and put it back on the tree. That is not something that's hard for God. On the list of hard things for God, that's not there. <laughs> not much is there, except for God's inability to sin, of course. It's very difficult, and it, he can't do it. So, but that's all the point. That's what it means when he says contrary to nature. We have, again, this how much more argument. True Israel remains God's cultivated olive tree. There's only one tree here. One tree. The covenant of grace. The people of God. Either natural branches or grafted in. That's it. One tree. Jews, even though they rejected the Messiah, they belong on the tree by nature, he says. By nature. So don't be arrogant, Gentiles in Rome. That's what he's telling them when he wrote this letter. If, I, if God is able to raise the dead, then surely he can put dead branches back on the tree. I love these people who... How could God have possibly walked on water? Uh, pretty simple. He created it. You know, if Genesis 1-1 goes, everything goes. There's nothing... You know, there's nothing that's too hard with God. If he can take a dead man and raise him to life... He can put a branch back on the tree. He can take someone who's walked away from him, raise him back up, and bring him back. That's the story of the prodigal son. So, back in Isaiah, the Old Testament spoke of a root from the stump of Jesse. That's Isaiah 11.10. And that, we know, was the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ would spring forth, and he would establish this renewed tree, and that, of course, was after the major pruning job of the Babylonian exile. God's cultivated tree had rebelled. What did God do? Remember what John the Baptist, by the way, said about taking the ax to the root? What was he talking about? Judgment. Who, where was the judgment coming? To God's olive tree. He was bringing judgment to them, and that's what Jesus did, of course. 
and that tree needed to be pruned. So much so they took the ax to the root. That's how bad it was. He had to cut it down there in order to make sure that it could be cultivated and grow the right way. And Jesus is the stump, or the, excuse me, the root, the shoot that springs forth from that tree. Babylonian exile had cut that tree down. But in Christ, they, he reestablished the tree again. Isaiah 27, verse 6 says, In days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. Interesting. From Isaiah again. This eschatological plan of God was to restore this tree based on the person and work of Christ, and it would spring forth and fill the world. The filling of the world, by the way, is the healing of the world. Listen to Revelation 22.2, which has quickly become a favorite verse. On either side of the tree, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. You see this theme of trees. It's all over the Bible. So, so clearly God desires to heal nations, right? He desires to heal them of their spiritual, physical, philosophical, and theological maladies. And as my friend Bojadar once said, he said, history is the perfecting of the creeds. History is the perfecting of the creeds. Let me explain that. The creeds. Let me explain that. What he means is, is as history unfolds, the tree grows. More and more people come to Christ, the tree continues to grow. As the trees grow, the nations can partake of the fruit. Okay, that's why you're not supposed to envy um, Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg and these billionaire people who own America. <laughs> you're not supposed to be jealous of them because that fruit is putrid. That's not, they're supposed to eat off our tree. We do not eat off their tree. That tree is poisonous. It's wicked. Now, there are some aspects to it that are common grace. Like, I appreciate a cell phone that just works. I like that. It's helpful for me. But at the end of the day, that's not where we're going. That's not where we're going. That's not the future. So as the tree grows, the nations can partake of the fruit. Part of the fruit is what I said last uh, two weeks ago when I used the... Um, very adept phrase, epistemological self-consciousness. Kids, can you say that? <laughs> epistemological self-consciousness. Yeah, good. That was a good try. Uh, <laughs> that is, let me explain, how men think and perform basic actions will improve with greater self-awareness. How men and women and children, and as you grow, how you perform actions and how you think will improve with a greater self-awareness. You become more self-aware. So people go from a debased mind to a sanctified mind, right? There's a progress there. Uh, wisdom will flourish in your life. Knowledge of God and knowledge of self will proliferate. In fact, Calvin has famously taught us that um, there's this deep connection with knowledge of God and knowledge of self. The deeper we go into the knowledge of God, the more we know ourselves. We know who we are. That's epistemological self-consciousness. That's you growing in your awareness of God and his grace and his mercy and, his, and everything he has, his wisdom. You're growing into that. You're supposed to anyway. And as you grow into it, you know who you are even more. You're more self-aware. All right, we all stop, maybe can stop and think, boy, I'm obnoxious sometimes, right? And that's like you growing. You're trying to grow in those areas. 
I know some of you are perfect and don't have those issues. Some of us are not as epistemologically self-conscious as you. The Bible also says that men won't learn war anymore because they will know that they know the Lord, which will guide their entire being. So even our theology will get straightened out as time goes on. The creeds and the doctrines will be sanctified. It's a growth. It's a progress. That's the progress of the kingdom. Now, the main issue here in this text has to do with what mankind trusts in. What does mankind trust in? We know what the Old Testament promised, the New Testament delivered, right? That was a, there was promises and then there was a delivery. It was all part of the plan. Christ the shoot came to be the renewed root of this tree in order to grow the tree the way God had always intended the tree to grow. So again, the tree is this covenant of grace. Men, women, and children, children, you too, you are brought into this covenant by faith in Christ whose faithfulness secured the grafting. You are a branch. You exercise faith. You're on a different tree. And God brings you in through resurrection and regeneration. And he grafts you in, ties you into this tree. And now you are a part of that tree. And you are called to then grow from there. So here's the principle. What we trust, what, what we trust shapes who we are. What we trust shapes who we are. If you trust the state you'll be let down, right? Those who live by the state by, die by the state. If you put your ultimate trust in relationships here on earth, what happens when death rears its ugly head? If you put your trust in money, what do you do when taxes go up again? When, you, when the stock market crashes, when the economy tanks because men worship the wrong thing. The truth is, when we don't obey God, we find ourselves constantly trying to be nourished by something other than Christ. It's like branches looking at the tree next to him. Wow, that, that looks like a luscious tree. I should jump ship here and go over there. It looks like a better view, a better option. When we, when we stop trusting Christ, when we stop doing that, we are thinking that there is nourishment to be had somewhere else, as if someone else is the bread of life, right? This nourishment is what Jesus meant in John 15 when he said to abide in him. We are supposed to see Jesus as our only hope. We are supposed to see Jesus every day as our only hope. Not a hope, not another hope, only hope. And this means that God in Christ is the exclusive source of life and healing for all mankind. Children, listen. If you want the blessings of God in your life, then you must be diligent to know that Christ is the only source of life. That's it. Nothing else is going to bring you happiness and joy like what Jesus Christ can give to you. And parents, isn't that what we want for our kids, right? For them to be entirely given over to the gospel, to have their lives entirely given over to the kingdom of God, to be so enamored by Christ and what he offers that every, every other desire looks like a, a dirty crumb on the floor that fell off a, after dinner. That's, that's what we want them to do, right? But is that what we're pursuing? Are you exemplifying this desperation in your life? Uh, the, worst, the worst sort of arrogance is the arrogance that boasts in self-sufficiency. Man trying to be God. We call it autonomy, self-law. That's why prayer sometimes is our last resort. You know, oh no, we've run out of options. It's time to stop and pray. <laughs> Not a good line. <laughs> Not a good look either. 
right? That should never be the case. But we do this because we think that we have things squared away on our own. We like to think that we're on the tree of life. And boy, Christ is just so lucky to have us on this tree. I'm a nice branch. I look great. I could, big, strong branch, you know, I could hold a swing set for a little kid. Christ is so, he's lucky to have me. That's how we think of it. But this is a boasting and it has no place in our life. And frankly, this is a boasting that'll get you sawed off the tree in a hurry. I think we're living in a time of much pruning. All of 2020 and the debacle with closed churches and rolling over to the state and, and all these things, I think it's just a time of pruning. And granted, it's like a giant buzzsaw and it hurts a little, but it's a pruning. It's a pruning. Much of the church is busy fiddling with lights and lasers and fog machines, and ours never came in, so sorry, guys. We... But that is if they, again, didn't shut down for erroneous orders. But while the church has been busy with that, what has been happening? We have this dilapidated culture that's in need of repair. But most people don't see the tree this way. They don't see their role on the tree as this way. They don't, they don't see the Christian faith as being a tree that is supposed to be pruned, that we're supposed to grow into those things with wisdom so that the nations will come and be healed. We don't usually view it that way. They don't see the covenant of God as something that's supposed to go out into the world and touch every aspect of life, right? And politics over there, my faith is here. Oh, no, we can't talk about masks. That's too political. No, it's not. It's a piece of cloth. You've made it political. Why? You know, that's this compartmentalization of the Christianity that's being pruned. It's destroying us. So that is to say the point of the gospel is the expansion of the gospel. The point of the gospel is the expansion of the gospel. We are a tree whose root is Christ, and God intends for this tree to fill the earth. That's what he wants. And this means that God is the exclusive source of all things. The entirety of our lives is to be in service to him. Children, your life is to be in service to who? Yes, to God, to Jesus Christ, his son. Your life is to be in service to him. And every thought, every decision, every action, every philosophy... Uh, All of it is to be determined on, guided, and directed by the law, word of God. And the purpose of history is not the exaltation of man, but the exaltation of the risen, risen Christ. That's why there's so much confusion right now in our culture, confusion in the church. All of this is because we're not seeking to exalt Christ in all things. We're still fiddling with the exaltation of man. So... Live your life in service to him. Children, glorify God by enjoying him forever. The only hope for you, your family, this county, this nation, indeed the hope for the entire world is Christ the root. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the what? The life. And he meant it. He's the life. That's what he meant. He is the life. Christ is the tree of life. So remain in him. Abide in him. Be nourished by him every single day in prayer, looking to his word. And listen, um, to to riff off a C.S. Lewis quote, Cultures are built by courageous men with chests, not cowards who are constantly paralyzed by fear. Breath in your lungs, sit up straight, and fight. That's how cultures are built. 
That's your job, children, to do the same. And so in order for the tree to grow, one must remain on the tree by faith, this unshakable confidence in the God of glory. In order to grow the tree, one must proclaim the exclusive claims of Christ. He alone lays claim to education, business, politics. Kids, you're studying writing and reading and math and all these things, and you may not think of it now, but know this. You are dabbling in that stuff. You are learning those things so that you can exalt Christ, so that you can be in service to him. And frankly, all of that means that it's time for the church to act like it. So no more boasting in self. Our only boast is Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words that Paul has penned here for us. Reading someone else's mail, so to speak, a couple thousand years later, we learn and glean a lot from what his exhortation was to the church in Rome. There's much to be, to be learned about us as we serve on this tree. And I pray that you would um, bring more branches into the fold. Um, that many would come and repent and believe the gospel and be healed and stop looking to politics and stop looking to these things like identity politics and stop looking around for some sort of philosophy to grab onto that's not you. We are very confused right now in our nation, Father. And as I understand your word, a lot of that is you're doing as a judgment. And so my prayer for these people here, for Cross and Crown and even those who couldn't make it, tonight, um, that we would very much take the exclusive claims of your son seriously and not, and not seek to be nourished by other things, but remain grounded in the root that is your son. So strengthen us, we pray. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.